0: Hey people, welcome back to Accidental Gods, to the podcast where we believe that another world is still possible and that together we can make it happen. I'm Manda Scott, your host at this place on the net where art meets activism, politics meets philosophy, and science meets spirituality. And this week I am delighted to invite back Mothia Rahman, Mothier spoke to us before of his work with XR, and the New Economy Law Centre, and his work in Scotland, helping to defeat the first of the big fracking enterprises in the UK. And back in the days when I was a veterinary academic, we reckoned that every PhD, every good PhD, should spawn at least six others. And I am coming to the conclusion that every good podcast should spawn at least six others. So this is one of the others that Mathieu Rahman's podcast gave rise to. And in this one, we're reaching more deeply into the nature of politics and power and the allocation of resource. And what is it that we can do who are ordinary people in the face of increasing authoritarianism, in the face of governments around the world who seem less and less inclined to work for the benefit of all, and more and more inclined to work for the benefit of the very small clique of the ruling class. And given the nature of the politics in the UK, this is potentially quite a downhearted episode. But we found moments of light, and I continue to find moments of light in the possibility of Scottish independence, though we didn't go there in this podcast. So anyway, as we investigate politics and law with someone who is one of the most activist lawyers in the country, I hope you find reasons for hope. People of the podcast, please welcome Mothir Raman. So Mothir Raman, welcome back to the Accidental Gods podcast. It is such a pleasure to have you back again. And you have moved since we last spoke. You were in Devon. And now you're in sunny Seaside, Brighton. What's it like? How is it different to Totnes?
1: It's great to be back, uh, Amanda, and just having this conversation with you. And uh, yeah, things have changed a little bit and the lockdown's kind of eased up a bit. So I was wandering around um, this place called The Lanes in Brighton, which are these narrow lanes of of shops. And it's just, um, yeah, there's a vibrancy because, you know, around the area, which Has a kind of a more of a city feel to it than Tottenham, I would say. Has still has a lot of creativity and uh, yeah, I love all the uh, the artwork and um, artists and the cultural kind of things that seem to be happening. There's a Brighton Festival happening uh, next uh, next month, so maybe it's just on a larger scale. There's lots of there's more things and more more Mm. perhaps more of the feel of London in terms of the demographics.
0: Yes, and, and it's a a real gay mecca. Most of my lesbian friends seem to end up moving to Brighton <laughs> so that they're amongst friends. And and you're right, it's it's an easy train ride to London. Whereas Totnes, it's hardly what you'd call easy to get anywhere else <laughs> except to Devon and Cornwall. So yeah, yeah. Having said that, all of my really right on friends are moving to Wales. So there you go. Maybe Brighton becomes a little bit of Wales locked in England.
1: I like, I like this idea of choice between different kinds of places. And the more we understand cities of cultures, towns of their cultures, and they all have their different factors. And we can and we can yeah, move to where we feel can most identify in that place. Because I think place-based lives and livelihoods is so important. And, and then the connection we can have like here, where we're speaking over the internet, Across places as well. So, but using these uh, tools to keep us connected with each other.
0: Indeed. Yes. So, we can have communities of place and communities of purpose. And sometimes our communities of purpose come together to become communities of place, which feels mm. increasingly important, I think. So, since we last spoke, there have been local elections and a by election in the UK. There were the elections also for the assemblies. Of Wales and the government of Scotland. And so our local political picture has altered somewhat, or perhaps has just confirmed what we already feared, and is already, it seems, having implications on our legal structures and on what the UK government is daring to do in ways that governments of the right have not in our lifetimes, I think. And so, as a lawyer with a real emphasis, on justice and equality and climate change and the understanding of progression
1: how are you feeling now and where do you see it going mm, thanks That's such a yeah such a good question um and broad um, yeah what i'm seeing is 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 the nations of the of what the political institutions you could say of the state of of uh, of great of great britain or the uk northern ireland Wales, Scotland, in England, the nations, and by nation I mean the people. Um, so there's kind of separation between the nation as a political identity, and then you have the nation, which are the people, um, having and growing their own identities. And 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 through that, moving in different ways, as you mentioned, Wales, you know, becoming more is more progressive in many elements with the uh Wellbeing of Future Generations Act. And in Scotland as well. Looking for independence with Brexit as well, you know that's a huge constitutional uh, change in terms of uh, UK's relationship to to Europe. So that's going to have consequences on how each of these nations see themselves. So that's unfolding, and then we're seeing. You know, I see it almost as fear as a policy driver. That's what I, I think in some ways. That's what the. I mean, you could say COVID has, has come in at a time and given a, a government with an authoritarian bent. The understanding and 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 notice of how you can bring policies much more easily when there is fear at the basis of it. So and then people just want to get things done or, or want things simple, and that's maybe what people have seen in the, in, in towards Hartlepool. And they just want they don't want all the introspection. They just need to feel safe and secure in their in their lives and that the jobs that they feel are, are disappearing can will come to them and it's who can meet those interests those immediate interests that are coming up because of fear that's that's what i'm seeing at this particular moment um and how how best to how best can we how best can progressive forces meet those and 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 satisfy those fears while at the while at the same time being and and saying that more democracy is what we need not less
0: yes and offering something that feels Real. So, two things come up for me when you say that. One is one of my very first teachers, when I started out on any kind of spiritual path a very long time ago, said that there are only two emotions in the world there is love and there is fear, and everything arises from one or other of those. And it has always seemed to me, as someone of the progressive left, that on the whole, and definitely not exclusively, but those most aligned to the concepts of progress are motivated by love, and those most aligned to the concepts of reaction are motivated by fear. And yes, I'm sure you're right that particularly the voters in Hartlepool, so for people outside the UK, somebody died, there was a by-election for that particular constituency, and it had been Labour since its inception way, way, way back, and it fell to the Tories. By a reasonable margin. But what struck me, when you look beyond all of the sound and noise that the press made about, oh my goodness, Labour is collapsing, was 60% of the potential vote did not turn out in that by-election. So so the Tories yet again got something like 23% of the vote, which seems to be what they get. It's just that the rest aren't Are either not voting at all or that the progressive vote manages to split itself across many, many separate factions. And so on that 23 percent, which scarily enough is exactly what propelled Hitler into power as well, the Tories are then able to claim that they have a mandate, because this is how our entire political system works. And so if we are going to craft something that will speak to people and yet is not based in fear. Have you a felt sense of what that is? How we can get ourselves as progressives out of the dead end that we seem to have blocked ourselves into?
1: Hmm. I, I love what you said there about love and fear as the two basic emotions, because that really gives a good structuring by which to really, well, to consider not just like all, all the different systemic levels at which decisions are being made, and one of the other things that I noticed as well about that by-election was the blaming and shaming then of Angela Rayner. She she was the deputy leader, so and and a woman that uh, and, and and this is important. A different class mm. came c- comes from a different background to to the leader, and it's 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 one of those things that is really invisible. On people don't want to talk about it. They go, oh, we've got beyond class now." But actually, when we think about the divisions in Labour and in the country the two factors of class and race and using those factors as as, as d- ways in which to divide and control. We need to understand that better, but not to understand it in a way that just goes introspective, but to say, how do we make our society more equal, more just? Um, and when fear is often being used as a policy driver or scarcity mindset, we're so used to that mindset mm. and, and blaming in ourselves rather than looking how do we move beyond this to, to say, and, and also not to divide, because it, when, when you said about um, that some are motiva- motivated by fear and some are motivated by love, I would say all are motivated in some extent by love, whether it's a love of tradition mm. and the past and the history and, and, and wanting to maintain that, or the love of the new, the love of the desire to see how, how can you do something different. And they're both loves, but they... Um, and and you might respond differently. And this is to me about how you might respond to something arising, like whether you hold or cling on to something even more strongly because you feel the fear of loo- losing it, mm-hmm. or because you love it in some way. But the response to that, I think, that's something about our different mindsets that, um, and we've got to understand and and, and be and th- that the love is is fundamental. I think to all of those emotions. Uh, I just remember, I mean, I'll just i just redirect a quote of Martin Luther King. I think he said it was something like, the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards justice. Yes. And by that he means that the arc of the, so the morality of each particular moment might look like you're in going a different direction, but it's bending slowly towards justice. So, and I would move also the word justice with love. So the arc of the moral universe is long, but it bends towards love. Mm. But we are in particular moments within that arc, and we may say, "Oh, but it's bending towards fear this here and there," and or the law is not meeting the needs. But it, the, 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 the we need, to, yeah. I, I feel we need to just take that step back and and really connect with these feelings of love that arise from different kinds of interests and different kinds of of uh, outlooks.
0: Okay, that brings up a lot too, and I hear you. Hmm. I I spoke last week to um, a gentleman called John Wood of a group called Braver Angels in the US that's designed to help bring people together across the political divide. And he is a young black man who was part of, he was active in getting Obama elected way back. And now he stands for the Republican Party, which does. Very strange things to my internal cognitive dissonance, and he's very clearly very used to people of the left having that cognitive dissonance, so we didn't go there because there was no point. And I'm sure that he would agree with you that his version of republicanism is based on love, and particularly of love of tradition. Mm. What I find, and what is probably part of my own tribalism, and I need to get over it, but even so, is that we on what we would call the progressive left, I would consider to be the ones who are desperately trying to heal people and the planet is that we put quite a lot of our bandwidth into trying to understand the other side. And John Wood and the Braver Angels apart, I have never met anyone of the right who put any bandwidth at all into trying to understand the motivations of the people on the left, partly because they can Simply roll over us. I think um, certainly now, at a point when the Tories are now eighty-two seats in the majority in the UK Parliament, I, I sometimes, occasionally, approach those people who are Tory activists that I know and suggest something like Brave Angels, you know, a meeting across the divide, and they are so not interested because they have no fear of us at all. There's there's no reason for them to reach out because we are no threat. And that for them, the only reason to reach out would be to nullify a threat. I suspect that north of the border in Scotland, that might be slightly different. And one of the things that I'm finding really interesting about that set of elections is they have PR north of the border. The English government is now endeavoring to strip PR from every form of voting in England. But if we had first passed the post in Scotland, there would now be an absolutely overwhelming majority for the Scottish National Party in the Parliament. Because there's PR, there is much more balance. And and much as I want Scotland to be independent, I think a balanced political unit making decisions is always going to make better decisions in the long run. So that was, that was me ranting, really. I'm kind of interested in where does that take you? And also then, what is it? how do we move towards a more just society when we have currently in government people for whom justice seems to involve othering large groups of people, then destroying them?
1: Good. Yeah. No, it's, uh, yeah. It's opened up some things for me. And um, wh- when you say, um, yeah, large amounts of energy spent trying to understand the other side by the progressive forces, that's where I think so you've there is a something that's happening that is, is unjust, and then there's a response like this, oh, we need to understand the other side. I don't think that is necessarily the solution to be had because the law itself, so we, we have different sides, and the whole point of democracy is to have a system of law that enables equality between all those different voices so that fairness and justness emerges and We haven't paid enough attention necessarily to the law, the structuring that law provides, because and and I think conservatives maybe give much more emphasis to that. So as you were mentioning, no, not hardly anybody's mentioning about this massive difference that it makes by you know the mayors in England who were elected also weren't first past the post, and there were all eight Labour. Mayors that were elected, and now the government's looking to change the structuring by which voting happens, so that um, it will it will side towards um, their th- um, towards the conservatives. It's called gerrymandering. That's the uh, name that's uh, been used for it before, uh, and, and this has a you know. And then in Scotland. The Electoral College, I'm just going to point this out because it's something I just found out recently as well, the Electoral College in in the US, you know, we talk about fairness and equality in the US, but the whole point of the Electoral College was to prevent, it was to do with slavery and and related to shifting how uh, voting can be enacted. You know, and and then we talk about democracy in Greece, but actually, in ancient Greece and Athens, but that also was about, you know, restricting who had the right to vote. So the rules by which we create fairness is as important as the contents. And if we don't, that's the th- so the threat would be if we can actually grasp the constitutional aspects of, of, of the legal system which is now being captured to no longer work towards the aim of, of a just society. That's what I feel as being the, the law itself is being captured, and we need to free the law.
0: Okay, so let's unpick for people who aren't constitutional experts, how the law in various countries is being captured. And and what you mean by that? Can you open that up a bit?
1: Yeah, so I teach um, co- a little bit of constitutional law, and I've been working public law in, in my um, capacities uh, as a, a solicitor, and now I'm doing more freelance work. But I'm trying to shift that whole uh, what I, where I'm working is is on, a, and I can go into is on a kind of solution called new mun- municipalism. But just to give a his sort of the history in a way of like as I see constitutionalism, I almost need to think about. The history of um how yeah i want to kind of not not go into too much detail but i guess in a simple way of saying it is, is that the economy law and justice kind of go together and when i say economy the economy is is the, it's around the allocation of resources and who gets to allocate the resources that's the economy and and so you know like 12th century england um, the economy was around wood and around timber and for ships for military building. And so there was a uh, um, there was a enclosure of those by the by then the, the, the king. And the charter of the forest was about opening up that enclosure so that the ordinary laborers could start foraging for their own subsistence. So that's what we need to think about. We need to think about economy in a much wider sense about who gets to allocate the resources, who's making the decisions and the law is the tool by which that happens, and justice is the felt sense of of living in a fair and meaningful society, where we each, as individuals, are respected, Um, and they they all come together in the idea, you could say, of the political economy, that the economy and the political are are together, and the law is a tool by which we structure our political economy. Um, and, And I would say, when I say captured, What I mean by that, I'd say, is we're captured by uh, uh, by fundamentalism of a kind, and we know some kinds of fundamentalism, and we go, those are bad. But when we see one thing that has been invisibilized is market fundamentalism. So markets are there as a tool to, to to for the allocation of resources, and you could say there are different tools by which we can allocate resources. So you could have the market to allocate resources. You could have a socialist government that would allocate resources, which is um, by its kind of ideas and principles that it would set out in its policy. Um, You could have city-states setting out um, the allocation of resources. But what I'm saying is that markets are there as a function of a society, but when fundamentalism is where the market becomes the society. So we're in a market society where um, the fundamentalism is that the market uh, it's, an, it's a fundamentalist ideology that the market will create a just society of, in of itself, and only the market will do that. And everything bends towards that arc rather than towards. It's almost like the, it's seeing the two things together. So I'm saying the, cap, the law has been captured by this ide- this fundamentalist ideology, and so we're not having a system of law that supports um, other needs um, or other human needs. That is is ascribed to what we mean by democracy.
0: Okay, so if I'm hearing you right, this is back to Kate Rayworth, who the author of Donut Economics, who said that what we need is an economy that works for the good of the people instead of the people working for the good of the economy or, or the market. And that what we have at the moment is a political and legal systemic structure that is designed to take and hold on to power so that the power has the ability to allocate resources to its own ends effectively so what we have in real terms is a government in the UK that for instance gave one of the biggest civil let me do that again Caro sorry gave one of the biggest civil contracts ever awarded to its friends for PPE in the coronavirus crisis without any kind of opening out. They didn't offer it to anybody else. They just decided that their friends needed 8,000 pounds a day and they were going to give it to them for public money. So they are giving themselves the ability to do this on an ever wider scale. And one of the things that I think you're alluding to, particularly in the UK, but we're seeing it at a state level in the US and in other places around the world, is the government seizing control and then using the tools of democracy to destroy democracy from the inside. So our government, if it goes ahead with what it said in the in the Queen's speech, is intending to remove legal oversight of itself as one part of this, so that it's no longer possible for the courts to go, you know, what you just did is illegal. They won't be able to do that anymore. And at the same time, they're endeavoring to make it harder for people to vote using US-style voter suppression tactics that have been very well finessed, by the southern states in the US and are now coming over here. So starting with, you would need photo ID in order to vote, and that would mean a driving license or a passport. And the people who have driving licenses and passports tend to be older, white, and better off. And the people who have neither and are never going to get either are the people who are poor, not white, or young. So then we end up with a government that creates a single party state, and is unassailable in our country, in England. I have hopes that Scotland and Wales may fracture off. is this Is this what you're referring to, and have I got it right?
1: I think yeah, no uh, there's a lot in there. Um, so so there's the cronyism that you were mentioning at the beginning. Let's just stay with that. Uh, I think yeah, there th- there are different sort of interests doing different things. But all aiming to against sort of anti-progressive kind of forces. So cronyism. So power isn't bad in and of itself. It's how the law or the rule of law. I mean, that's the idea. That the rule of law is the idea is the is the is the principle that you know the Magna Carta was brought in through force uh, and pressure by the barons. But because the king originally was seen as the sole authority by divine right. The big thing about the Magna Carta was, yeah, it was just the barons who were getting uh, some distributions of that power, but it was because a document began setting out the rules by which everyone, even the king, needed to abide by. And it's that evolution of that line of thinking that leads then towards the idea of constitutionalism, and there are two forms of constitutionalism. There's political constitutionalism and legal constitutionalism. Legal constitutionalism is where you're, where the law itself, so you have a codified constitution, so that the US. Political constitutionalism is more where the idea is that the constitution of the, the country and democracy will arise. Um, uh, uh, the political forces create the balance itself. And we are much more... Have, ascribed towards this idea of a political cons- uh, constitutionalism we don't we one of three countries in the world that doesn't have a codified constitution
0: what what are the other two I like
1: think Israel and New Zealand are the other
0: I think Iran
1: even Iran I think might have a constitution but because um, but I think those some constitutions could say are just are just fig leaves so some would say they're not real constitutions or they're not constitutions in the in the sense of of, of providing uh, equality of power for example you know um, after when 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 cromwell was in power so the, you could almost ascribe this piece to, to that time as well. Cromwell, so that time, what, 16 1700s. That, I mean, when we talk about constitutions as, as, as well, we we often talk about the Treaty of Westphalia, which is around 1650, which was the treaty which set out the idea of the state, of state sovereignty. And that's also another huge sort of idea that the state has sovereignty um, over a particular territory. But that was led because of all the wars, the religious wars. There was, um, you know, Luther, Martin Luther Protestantism, which was coming out, and so the territory in the of, of again this is about economy as well, but where the Pope or the Catholic Empire, you know, the Roman Catholic Church, which you know, there's another body coming in with different ideas, and so uh, and different um, not aligned with that interest, and so you know, in, in northern um, Europe, and so you had these religious wars and state wars that were going around for the hundred years, as well, for the thirty years of war. Uh, eight million people dying and then this treaty trying to establish some sense of peace of oh no the rules by which peace could happen and state sovereignty was one of them oh so i was talking about political constitutionalism and legal constitutionalism so so you you've you've come to this yeah the idea of state sovereignty and
0: i think hobbes Hobb's idea of the nation as a political unit that has a monopoly of violence within its borders is a really interesting one and useful as a concept of what a state is, particularly in the UK, we are defined by the fact that we're an island. you know our borders are where the sea starts. But pretty much anywhere else in, on the big land masses, the border is where the political force stops having the monopoly on violence and another force has a monopoly on violence and that border is has to be respected because they both have an equal monopoly on an equal size of violence. And I find that quite an interesting concept,
1: and not just well violence, and also on resources, alloc- resource allocation. So the uh, r- uh, the capacity to raise taxes uh, and and uh, and then have the force of violence behind that is uh, another um, bringing the economy and, and violence together. Um, yeah. Wh- where I was going to go, yeah, with with p- political constitutionalism is that the balance of powers is um, raised not just by, um, we don't have a written codified constitution which is beyond the idea of this parliament making the laws, which where you could strike down a law of parliament because it's not in, in line with the constitution which you have in the States. Because the the forces of politics of of, of who we bring in and, or the conventions of parliament and even the idea that somehow we're, we're a bit more gentlemanly in England. And so, you know, we've got this kind of, we we we've got this kind of uh, we don't need that kind of level of codification um, is there so so um, so if that gets captured or those forces that are are, are uh, not properly visualized if how power is used so this is what I was trying to get to if so power is not necessarily bad it's what is made visible and what's left invisible so again so that's the cronyism that's Greensill with uh, David so that's a massive thing when you really think about it in these terms that. You have a, an organization that all it's doing is some kind of financialization of the economy. It's moving money around in a way that makes more money for some for people who want to make more money who've already got capital, and you're using um, your the the connections to be able to do something. But we don't even have the conventions or the real understanding or a set of laws by which actually this is all set out. It's meant to be done by convention. Yes. Um, uh, so the ju- and judiciary. This is important. The judiciary don't really have a role over the conventions of parliaments, and and so we saw a lot of that happening in Brexit and so on, where we had to work out what the boundaries were of 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 some of the conventions around pr- of, of of prorogation and uh, and also you know. Um, um, with Article 50.
0: Okay, so let's go down this rabbit hole a bit, but we need to clarify things for people who are not in the UK. So taking a step back, I think Greensill is a really interesting example. So for people not in the UK or people who don't obsessively follow politics and who are in the UK, it was, as Mathieu says, a, a financial business. And the former Prime Minister David Cameron, the one, I think, really ironically, who came into power saying that lobbying was the big scandal in British politics and that he was going to clean it up. and He was then dissuaded from cleaning it up, presumably by powerful lobbying, has then become a lobbyist for a a company in which he has a stake. So He apparently, and he says he didn't, but it is alleged that he was telling people how many millions of pounds, many millions, he stood to gain if his lobbying was successful, such that this particular company got certain contracts from the government. And as Mothier says, we in the UK don't have a written constitution that stands in the way of that. And I think that's partly because when our government was devised, when the rules that regulate it such as they are were laid down, anyone likely to be elected had come from one of a very small handful of public schools. They all assumed that they all lived by the same values, and those values were largely imperial because our politics and government were broadly created during an imperial era. I would say we're at the dying end of that imperial era and that it started with the Roman Empire, if not with the Greek Empire, but that's a separate conversation. I think it was taken for granted that they all lived by the same rules. And as you said, they were gentlemanly, and that has two things. It has class and it has gender built into that word. A gentleman was of a certain class and they were a man. And therefore, there was no requirement for anything to be put in writing because words, as we've seen in the US, it is possible to parse sentences down so they no longer have any meaning. The entire gun rights lobby takes a concept of the legal right to have an armed militia and turns it into the right for any human being to have assault-grade weapons that can, as we have seen, wipe out many hundreds of people. And so, in many ways, not having a written constitution has possibly been safer. But David Alan Green, the amazing constitutional lawyer at the time of Brexit, And even since, has been quite clear on the points where a written constitution could have been useful. But what we have now is a government led by a man who believes that laws don't apply to him. So even when we have engaged in a treaty, for instance, uh, with the EU, particularly with regard to Northern Ireland, they are busy explaining why those rules actually don't apply to them anymore and that the EU's attempts to go but you signed up to this, this is what it says, are in fact a wrecking action on the part of the EU. And so I wonder where it takes us. I have two questions. One is, where does that take us? And second, in the slightly paranoid world that I live in where Steve Bannon is running our government (laughs) behind the scenes, and I have read the book Democracy in Chains, which does detail how to destroy democracy from the inside by people who are very clear that democracy and their form of market fundamentalism are not compatible. So I am left staring at what's happening, thinking this is not an accident. It's extremely deliberate, and it's very clear where it takes us. It takes us to Steve Bannon's white supremacist patriarchal theocracy, which is his day aim. And I wonder, am I being simply over-paranoid? Or is this where we're headed? So there's lots of questions there. It's very broad. You can pick up whichever of those rabbit holes appeals to you most, Mathieu. Go for it.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, thanks for um, yeah r- reminding me uh, yeah, that there, it's an international audience we have. And uh, so I just wanted to sort of scope out some of the things in sort of more broad brushstrokes. Just to help the thinking that you've, yeah, also, you know, you've, you're bringing in. So I just want to, so like the fund, like, I th- if you can think of it in terms of like the rules by which the game is being played, uh, or, or that, I don't want to call it a game, but it's the way, way by which we can find meaning in our lives and, Narrowing it down to the idea of the state, so we've got three ins- bodies, three main bodies there. That in any in any sort of country, will normally have a, um, if they're following a kind of a democratic structure. You've got a body which represents the people, and in England, that's Parliament. It may be a Congress or son- a Senate in the states, you know. So it represents the people, maybe direct or usually representative democracy. So it's um, uh, one person will represent um, a group of people in a territory. Um, and they come together and they make the laws on behalf of the people. Uh, and then you have a government um, and an, or an executive which enacts and brings those laws into force. So it has an operationalizing aspect. So the government. And then you've got the judiciary, which is a kind of an oversight body to make sure that the executive doesn't overstep itself in enacting the law. So, um, you know, it doesn't take too much power. So you can bring an action against the government, say you've stepped over, the the law says this, you thought you have interpreted it this way, and that's going too far. Judiciary then, because they are the um, uh, arbiters of justice, will say, yes, this is the law, and the executive got it wrong. Or they'll say, no, the executive are right, they're within the remit of what the law has said. So, those are the three bodies, and it's a kind of a balance between those three bodies. What you, were, I think, you're alluding to with Boris Johnson breaking that is a f- even a more fundamental principle. I think that is embedded in our consciousness, which is called the rule of law. And I think it it, it is a, it's not a thing, it's not a, but it is a concept in law, and it just means that we all have equality before the law, and how that is measured, and how it's. Um, how it's understood is is it can be different, but fundamentally it's that there should be no um, nobody should be treated better than anybody else. And I think Lord Denning, who who is one of the um, well the House of Lords, a really quite famous judge, he said something like, um, "However high you may think you are, the law is higher still." Mm. And what he meant by this is the rule of law, that idea of the rule of law. So no matter how how your status is, the rule of law, that concept means you are still uh, subject to it. What what Boris did, in a way, is is undermine that very principle. Like, In order to meet immediate needs, meet particular things, at this particular moment, he's, as you said, unravelling the very structure by which we understand a system that has taken so long to put together around you know having all these wars and so on and we've got a system of you know you could say that the idea of europe was part of that to try to bring more peace but the unraveling of even the idea that some once you've made an agreement that you'll keep to that agreement mm. if somebody any one person can break that agreement what's to stop anybody else say well i can just put a law in now because i know um I, nobody's going to come back to me because somebody else has already done this you know it's a slow erosion of this concept and it's a hollowing out of the basic fundamental sort of sense and I think that's what's creating the fear in some ways in ourselves because we don't know what to hold on to anymore because our world pictures are so there's no basis and and part of the reason there's no basis no ground to hold on to are two other influences well one other influence that is massive now that wasn't there you could say when we were thinking about what institutions are so important to have a balance of power and that's the institution of the media by which information is circulated and you know it was um pamphlets and printing press a few hundred years now it's far higher than that and there's still not enough control over that there is no you know murdoch can have be an owner of um of a press and it took an inquiry in england to sort of even to put down some very soft laws on on um controlling that but to bring more accountability to the media, I think, is a really important well aspect of bringing into a kind of thinking around the constitution. And the other thing I wanted, wanted to bring in uh, as well is how we, the demographics, and how we are situated in in a con- in the country, not in small rural communities, but now in cities, and much more in cities. And cities themselves, as a as a place where this rubbing against each other happens where the, This is what I was saying about Brighton at the beginning, maybe a little bit, but essential to rub up against people with different values, different ways of looking at the world, not really just to understand them, but to know that there are, that your view isn't necessarily the only. And it's uh, that's what I call the civic, I don't know, the civic texture, and that's kind of what you know. Maybe people are waking up to it because of the loss, because of COVID and being in isolation. What this civic texture is It's the texture of of meeting people in the streets, of, of rubbing up against each other, and in small interactions, and the city as a place of in of that of a site. You could say a site of agency for that to arise is also something interesting. Um, that could be a, a counterforce to um, the state monopoly.
0: Yes, particularly if we have activist mayors who are part of the C40, which is actually now a C97 of very progressive mayors who are working together. And on their website, they reckon that they are now have oversight of 25% of the entire global GDP, which is becomes then a very significant political unit. So this is really interesting. I think what we're walking towards is that potentially institutions that we have taken absolutely for granted, particularly the concept that the rule of law exists, that as you said, nobody is above the law. I love that Denning quote, however high you may think you are, the law is higher still. But we are currently led by someone who, from the age of five, stated that he wanted to be king of the world. He doesn't want anything higher than him, and he has, by the vagaries of our political system, got the power to put himself above the law. So, given that that is the case and seems to be happening, what can we do personally with our own personal agency and collectively as groups of people Mm. to find a way forward that isn't either anarchy or totalitarian autocracy?
1: I've been a member of um, Extinction Rebellion for a long time. <laughs> um almost since its um, inception and I've been taking part in strategy meetings and t- really understanding this principle of disruption to to bring forth dilemmas by which you're working outside the existing system to bring something that disrupts the, the system as it is. That's what, you know, the roadblocking road blocking was in a way and and you know the mass because it causes the dilemma of whether to have mass arrests, which will bring public media interest, or to let it happen, which will also bring lots of public media interest, and and so the disruption is happening already. So we've seen just recently, and I, and I mean the disruption between and, uh, and and bringing the questions of the difference between law and justice, because the the, the and, and starting conversations. I think we need to start thinking much more deeply about assumptions that we've had, so that we can start breaking them down and, and re formulating things to work towards the civic interest because the public interest, the idea, and that's another thing that's in law, the public interest, but that concept has been captured by state bodies. There's, there's been a politicization of the state, of the agencies, like the Environment Agency, of what it means um, to be acting in the, in the public interest. I'll give you a particular example of that, and that was around fracking a few years ago, where um, and I was doing a lot of work on the anti-fracking movement. And there was a report. So DEFRA, which is the agency for oversight mm. with environment and rural affairs, um, they, they commissioned a report um, to look into the effects, uh, some of the impacts of, of fracking on health. And this was about the same time as, a, as there was going to be a planning application by one of the um, uh, one of the oil fracking companies in a particular region, Hmm. so the regional body was, you know, the planning authority was going to make a decision. Now the results of the commissioned report was detrimental, well not detrimental, but it was was critical of those impacts. DEFRA then prevented it, there's a Guardian article about it, it prevented its publication so that until after the decision was made by the public body. That's what I mean by the politicization of the public interest, because that should have been out there. For the public to be making the decisions, mm. or, or, or not for a particular um, state. So the state now begins to act for its interests rather than for the interests. So you need to have we need to have clear sort of boundaries between what we mean by the public interest, the state interest, or the state is when it starts beginning to act for, to hold on to power, and so is acting for its own interests rather than um, in a wider sense um, the interests of. The, the, what, what what needs to be there for deliberation. Yeah, the other thing I just wanted to mention about disruption, um, and this is more current, so just taking what XR has been doing and its impact. So there's been uh, some recent cases before the court. Um, one was a jury trial um, with the um, Shell... Um, seven, um, sometimes called the Shell Six, but six people took plea of not guilty, but they were found by the judge and directed by the judge to be found because of what they'd done. Factually, they were guilty of the offence, uh, but the jury found them not guilty. So that's, in a way, the whole idea of the ju- uh, of justice and the law now not quite meeting I don't want to go into, yeah, I won't go into law and equity, but there is a kind of interesting parallel between law, the black letter of the law and equity. The principle of equity was that sometimes the black letter of the law doesn't come to just uh, decisions. So equity, the principle of equity was to allow a judge to, to bring something else in that would meet the, um uh, the a remedy that would be more equitable than the black letter itself stands for. So there's already this concept that the letter of the law might not all necessarily always lead to just outcomes. So that's a jury trial. The other thing I want to mention is two cases that's really interesting. I think one of them was on your uh, show. Not because I was listening to, him, but Justin yes. uh, Kenrick, who's in, uh, an exile member in Scotland, and he was found, as I understand, uh, he was found not guilty, even though he admitted to the to the offence. The, ju- the judge the, um, at the magistrate's level found him not guilty, and I think there's going to be an appeal on that by the Crown Prosecution Service, which would be really interesting to see how those arguments come out. Um, yes, or, or in relation to that.
0: Yes, and I think those are both very heartening and a great testament to the power of jury trials, because as you said, with the the Shell individuals, they pled not guilty in order to get a jury trial. And the statement that I read by one of the individuals was, was really interesting because he listed at the end the times when people had acted against the letter of the law. So, the kinder transport, getting, getting Jewish children out of German held territories, was against the letter of the law. The women who fought for the right for women to vote were going against the letter of the law. He he listed a whole number, and he said, "What I have done, without question, is against the letter of the law." But we have listed for you the reasons why we believe. And what they'd done was uh, written graffiti on the Shell buildings in in London. So it was they had defaced a physical monument or a physical building, and yes, that is against the letter of the law. And yet we believe that Shell is creating vast quantities. Of environmental destruction perfectly legally. And therefore, we believe the law needs to be changed, and this is what we're doing. And as you said, the jury found them unanimously not guilty, despite the judge having said, directed them to find them guilty. And similarly, Justin did say exactly on this podcast that he just had a very good conversation with the judge, with the solicitors, with everybody. He went, Yep, I sat in the road. All other avenues to me had been blocked. And I believe that the situation is dire enough that this needs to happen. And yes, the Crown Prosecution Service has required or asked for an appeal. So as we're heading down towards the end, I'd really like to begin to bring people to a sense of where can we go in the UK and internationally? Because it feels as if governments with obvious exceptions, like Biden in the US, are becoming more authoritarian. And possibly, that they have some support. I listened to a podcast recently with Vince Cable speaking to Compass, which is one of those groups that's advocating for PR and also for a progressive alliance in the UK. And he had been on a Zoom call with a big polling body that they believed, who said that 50% of the people they polled wanted there to be no change at all. No political change, nothing, everything to be cast in aspic, which I think is what you were talking about earlier of that love of tradition. And the other 50% were desperate for radical change now. The problem was that the 50% that wanted no change tended to be old, middle class or upper and white, and these are the people who vote. This is how we have a government in the UK with an 80-seat majority, so an unassailable majority on 23 percent of the total potential vote because the people who vote for them actually turn out. And the people who don't want them either fracture the vote amongst many different parties or just don't turn up because they don't think that voting has consequences. So if the government in power has an authoritarian bent, is inclined to either ignore the law or put itself above the law has a tendency to want to capture resource allocation and flood it into the people with whom they are very close friends and has the capacity to change the law such that it will be very very difficult to remove them from power absent a revolution which is almost certainly impossible now that we have the state's surveillance capacity of Facebook and Google and GCHQ. What can we do to change things in time because we are the people who do believe that there is a climate and ecological emergency? How can we act in ways that are in line with our view of the world as a flourishing and potentially beautiful place?
1: I wrote an article for Resurgence and Ecologists, um, just before the first XR Rebellion, and I was trying to put a perspective in, uh, in, in the article around, I can't remember the social scientist, but he, this social scientist had done some research around collapse of different civilizations through history. And he said the common factor mm. that he... Found between in those collapses, it ended up with the oligarchical authorities, and that can be different. The, when I say oligarchical, is the authorities which have control over the systems of power and resource distribution. Maybe priests in different eras. So short-term interests unraveled the longer-term interests of the society that their uh, that everybody's interests were based upon, um, because they were focusing so much on the short term, and that's exactly what we're seeing now. Now. What the argument I was trying to put in the in in, in the um, article is that most when we think about the oligarchical authorities, we've got the state we've got the state uh, bodies, you could say, um, uh, which are very tied into the um, the market th- those which believe in market ideology, market fundamentalists, mm. and those two are very tied uh, together. And so you could either attack either of those, but my argument was, what if? rather, there's a third body, which is civil society. And so they're the ones with the, the longer term interests. We need to strengthen the longer term interests to really bring that up at the same time, as a just because att- the attacking is, is, is one way of targeting, but the strengthening of civil society. And that for me was part of what XR was doing, was this longer term picture of strengthening, giving the literacy because the literacy is missing in our society, you, you, just the very basic economic facts or the legal, let people make their own decisions once they are given facts. Mm. And I'll point to, you, to a particular example, and this was the Scotland one, which I mentioned in the earlier podcast we did, but in Scotland, when, when Scotland put forward its public consultation and we went to the um, to the communities, we didn't campaign and advocate for a particular position. We were trying to be impartial and gave the information to them because a lot of them were saying, but they're going to give us jobs and they're going to do this. And, and then we said, well, well, go deeper into it. And this is the information. And they go, oh, but hang on a second, the money's going elsewhere. Who are these people that it's going to go out to? Oh, it's not going to stay. Or oh, the better stuff is going outside. And they began questioning all that. And so by allowing people to deliberate, and this is, again, the citizens' assemblies, the the people's assemblies, the, the this is all part of it not just exile, but a wider group. I think we need to strengthen economic democracy, uh, legal democracy, you know, the ideas, um, and give agency to people who don't normally have agency. They're seen as beneficiaries, so citizens at the bottom end of society, the most deprived, those who have been affected, impacted most by COVID-19, those who still are being treated as beneficiaries or we will, will find ways to grant them funding or so on. And, but the agency of who makes those economic decisions still lie in a particular class. So we need to widen who's making those, age, those decisions and trust the people in the end. We've got to trust the people and, and that they will make better decisions. And when it comes to that curve that you were saying, that 50% don't want no change, I remember Polly... Higgins, when she was alive, she was one of my inspirations, and one thing she she brought up, um, Simon Sinek, who's this um, theorist, and, and he talks about the a normal curve. So you drew up a normal curve, Said so that's the curve of of innovation and change. Fifth, the middle bit, nobody wants change, of course, so that's uh, the, the norm, but we need to, and then the bottom, the the pioneers, they're like a tiny proportion. Then after the uh, early the pioneers, there's the next the very small band of people who are the ones who could go either way, and they the people we need to target, like the people who was who like the GP I forgot um, her name who who was um, she was arrested, so you know uh, Dr Sarah Ben with XR. Thirty-year being a doctor with the, the NHS, always law abiding, she sits in the middle of the road for for the um, for one of the protests and, and is found not guilty by uh, again as well as Justin. She's also somebody who the magistrates found not guilty hmm. because of what the uh, the honesty and, and her understanding that she was now one of these early adapters to a different way of doing things. So I think that focus and bringing those. De- what's happening the disruption between law and justice getting people to start thinking a bit deeper about these issues and and holding those conversations well but not trying to advocate not to onboard in the way of like we've got an agenda behind this is allowing deliberation um, and having respect for the autonomy of individuals and that we will come to better decisions if we allow that autonomy but unwiden the autonomy The, the other thing i just want to mention as well i think it's really important is what you were saying about i don't remember how you mentioned it but the way i just wrote it down was about protest um and the power of protest yeah the people who found not guilty you mentioned about justin and the statements they made they were also pointing out something that's really important and academics and legal academics are also and, and the law also recognizes this is important so conor gait is a human rights lawyer or a book called the struggle for civil liberties and I also mentioned it in the article that I wrote in Resurgence, and and because his writing of it is saying that the civil liberties never came through those who already had uh, power. It was it was claimed by those, and what we see now as normal was a claiming of more rights for those who are disenfranchised at that particular moment and the and the law recognizes that protest is an important accountability and and a negative feedback loop against the excessive grabbing of power by those who already have power so protest that's why you know the policing um you know part of the reason why I think when the covid uh, happened that there was a uh, there was a ex- exemption for political protests up to the, so long as, you know, up to a larger numbers and were allowed in other circumstances, because the importance of protest to prevent the over-grabbing or the grabbing of power is such an important thing. And now we're seeing in the policing bill, which is trying to be forced through, how the story and the narrative that the government is trying to put on that, and the media can bring that in, is is, is just a very surfacey kind of idea of, w- of what is legitimate and what's un- illegitimate. And we need to broaden and give the tools to people to understand what is legitimacy, what legitimates political power. Because they're not necessarily, we don't need to go into complications, but by bringing the simple tools to understand by lived, their own lived experience what is happening, I think will will strengthen that civil Force that we really need to be a counterforce to the other two elements: the oligarchs, the the state, and the market.
0: And do you think we're nearly out of time? But this is feels huge. So again, for people outside the UK, the government's policing bill is endeavouring to bring in something that I think is incredibly dangerous because basically it's setting up a ten-year potential prison sentence for anyone who causes annoyance. And they haven't defined annoyance. And I have a strong feeling that we could get 100,000 people in Trafalgar Square in support of Israel and Tommy Robinson, as we saw last night at the time of it wasn't 100,000. There was a large number of people draped in Israeli flags yesterday, and the police made a very pleasant cordon around them. And I don't suspect that would be considered annoying at all. But if you or I walk down the street talking into our mobile phone and they decide that's annoying, then we could be liable for 10 years in prison. And certainly they are targeting XR absolutely because toppling of statues, they're targeting XR and Black Lives Matter, toppling of statues or sitting in roads are explicitly defined as things that might cause annoyance. And so for those of us who went and sat in roads in a long time ago, October 2019, a 10 year sentence is very, very different to what we thought we were up for at those points. And it seems to me that yes, we can try to strengthen the civil arm, but we have a government that's moving very fast to clamp that down, and we are up against a climate emergency. That, as far as I can tell, we have basically got eight years to turn the ship of our market fundamentalist economy around, and I'm not seeing a government that is inclined to do that. How do you see? Us in a couple of years' time when this policing bill has gone through, when people don't dare go and sit in the streets, when even hanging a banner from a motorway overpass might be considered an annoyance. What are we going to do?
1: Yeah, well, we need to learn from history and, and, and see the parallels and what, what has worked. So, the, this bringing of the policing bill, you know, it's yeah, the chilling effect that it has on protest. It makes, makes me think of um, uh, Britain as it was in the Raj, and um, my ancestry is in Bangladesh. And um, but um, uh, when they brought in the salt laws against you know another form of of, vi- of violence or, or injustice, people, ordinary people, were up in arms. And, and it was, but it was Gandhi with his understanding and his capacity for shotti um, groha. I think we you know, some trying to pronounce it in, in, in the way my mum would have pronounced it. Shotti um, means truth and guraha is to pull or to bring out um, uh, and so this idea of truth force Satchigraha. Um, um, so this and, and we like the, the lady I just mentioned earlier her sitting there the truth force of what she said what Justin said is what led to fi- fines and not guilty and the more we can come out and Bring the government into ridicule. this is because it's a ridiculous thing. It's not just that we we can we can take it seriously and go, ten years, oh my god, and, and we can't should we really go out in the streets. but you know, if there are ways in which we can ridicule the government for its um, which was what was happening when they tried to um block any protest in all of London, um, after the October Rebellion, when, when I think a um, number of people started putting little signs up saying "I'm I, I'm I'm a protester," or something, we just need to be um, aware of how we can ridicule and the, how the power of ridicule to to actually make something that seems really strong seem a bit silly and and have it have it really brought into other, lots of people's minds and and cut to go across the boundaries. The, of our traditional right and left, because there are ways in which it has happened. It's about fairness. I would say that one of the characteristics of uh, the population that are of, of of this country, which you know, my country is 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 fairness, is a sense of fairness. And when Cummings went and drove, you know, that sense of unfairness cut across all the divides. It's like why would he? Why is he allowed to do it and not us? What, what, you know? And it's that it's something about bringing to to to, to face. W- uh, what these authorities are doing, and f- and, t- and finding those in that band that I was saying about, between the very pioneers of change and the early adopters of it, that play, the early adopters, a, a, a cross-cultural party of those who, who just no longer, can no longer believe that this government is on the right track towards, in, within this period of time towards the right, uh, towards justice, towards the needs. Of, of our communities.
0: Okay, that feels like a very good place to end because it sounds slightly hopeful, which I was beginning to get quite depressed. <laughs> so so let's leave it there unless there's anything that you wanted to say that we haven't got to.
1: You mentioned Kate Roweth and um, her work with donor Economics, and I think that's such a positive, and um, this is where we're moving away from just the disruption towards what n- new thing can we bring in as well to, to shift um Our economy or the ways of thinking about the economy and our structuring, and she's made she's done that in Amsterdam because Amsterdam, as a city is um progressive, mm-hmm. and so this is what I was saying about cities i knew knew were mentioning as well with the um these radical cities and mayors coming together. Are they called brave cities uh
0: they could be it's under the rubric of the c forty because there were originally forty of them that came together and uh, we are going to be interviewing someone from Amsterdam in a couple of weeks time.
1: Oh brilliant. So in England that's also um you know we need to bring and it's called you know new municipalism is an idea that is gathering pace and for me new municipalism is you could say you've got if you've got the state as allocation of resources and you've got the market as allocation of resources new municipalism is saying the people in the city that can be under different kinds of would would operate under different values and can create a different kind of localized economy for the benefit of the commu- the communities that they live in within that place and you know there's different ways in which it can emerge. Preston, there's something called the Preston model where it's emerged in Preston. Plymouth is doing some amazing things um, now being a social the first social enterprise city. So these are local places. Uh, and with the mayors as well, as you're saying, we've got decentralized um, and devolved power to mayors. So there, there's an opportunity there for those mayors to really grab onto that and, and to 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 show and de- to demonstrate good outcomes. That's what I think, because when you were saying about mm. people don't want change, what they want to see is no change. To They want to see jobs and they want to see security and they want to see people doing that. And there's no reason why progressive forces can't do that and demonstrate that. And um, And that's what we need to see.
0: Brilliant. Right, that's been fantastic. Thank you, Mothir, for coming back onto Accidental Gods. Thanks, Manda. Thanks. So that's it for another week. Enormous thanks to Mothier for his depth of knowledge of what the law is and where it goes and his ability to find bright shoots anywhere it could go. Inevitably, after we stopped recording, we continued the conversation and we talked a lot about work that he is doing funds he is attempting to raise in areas of the UK where deprivation is biting really hard, where years of being abandoned by Westminster governments have led to chronic unemployment and COVID then layered on top of that, and how the building of community is the way forward. How giving people the agency and the power and the understanding that goes beyond the brief headlines at the top of the hour in the music stations or the front page of the right-wing tabloids is the key to what we can do and how we can move beyond the crisis of governance that we now face. Because it is a crisis of governance. We do have a very short time and we have a government that basically runs by PR and fancy headlines and underneath is hollowing out our democracy. That's in the UK, and it may be different where you are. But a lot of the world governments do seem to be talking to each other and sharing their best practices for creating the most authoritarian version of a pseudo-democracy. So on that cheerful note, we will be back next week with another conversation. Next week, I hope and believe we're going to Amsterdam to talk to one of the C40 cities that is about to become a donut, economic city. So that should be somewhat brighter. If you want the show notes with links to anything that Motheo mentioned, then we're on accidentalgods.life and the membership program is there and the Patreon link if you want that nice, warm, fuzzy feeling of supporting the podcast. And if you know of anybody else who wants to be part of the generative dance of the world, then please do send them this link. And that's it for now. See you next week. Thank you. And goodbye.